Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. My name is Melissa Boswell. And I'm Hannah O'Day, and we're PhD students at Stanford University. This podcast is brought to you by the International Society of Biomechanics. It's, it's time, time for Boom. Welcome to Boom. We have Biomechanics on Our Minds. Boom. 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 Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. Biomechanics on Our Minds. (laughs) I'm Melissa. And I'm Hannah. And we are here today with a really exciting interview for you. We just got off a high of recording. It was (laughs) just one of those conversations that I think made both Melissa and I just feel re-energized and ready to take on the world today. So we talked with Professor Helen Bain, who is a lecturer, researcher, and sports scientist at the University of Pretoria in South Africa. She talked about so many different things, and we had just such a great conversation talking about how she's able to blend her positions as a researcher, professor, and consultant, and how her beginnings as a gymnast and coach have informed her journey. We talk about working with athletes to improve their performance and overall health, the potential pitfalls of working with wearables in order to do this. And also, Helen just talked about her unique perspectives working in South Africa, what different problems and questions that gives her, as well as her role in co-founding the South African Society of Biomechanics and some of the major goals of that group and super exciting things to come. Yeah, it's kind of amazing. We wish that we were down in South (laughs) Africa with her having this conversation, but we were really excited to get to talk to her on Zoom. Go for it. Yeah, it's kind of amazing that we were able to fit all of that stuff in 45 minutes, but I had a blast and just really enjoyed the conversation. But (laughs) before we get into that, (laughs) we're going to start off with a bit of boom. 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 All right, Hannah, you want to start off with your bit of boom? Sure. I'm really excited about our bit of booms because they're super human focused. Not that our bit of booms are not always human focused. Well, sometimes they are. Sometimes they're just bird focused. But I love my bit of boom because it comes with a story, something I know that Melissa and I both really love and connect with. It's all about footprints in the mud and what they can tell us about the person who made them, even though these footprints were made 2.6 million years ago. The study was led by Matt Bennett and published in Quaternary Science Reviews and was brought to my attention, actually, because Emily Machiavik in Carl Zellick's lab tweeted it, saying that mud is the original force plate. Uh, and I just amazing. loved the simplicity <laughs> of that. <laughs> right. So this article just shows us how much we can learn from simple footprints in the mud. We don't need a fancy force plate or motion capture system, but there's a lot that we can actually learn from human footprints in the mud. The authors, for example, noted an asymmetry to the gate at one point in this 1.5 kilometer track of footprints. There's a smaller set of footprints that joins in. And so together, the asymmetry in this small track of footprints 
as well as other evidence, led the researchers to conclude that this was one adolescent or small adult female carrying a mm. child. And since this is the longest double human trackway from the late Pleistocene age, which is about 2.6 million years ago, it's the longest trackway in the world. The variability in the morphology of these footprints, as well as the analytical toolkit they used, can help inform what we can learn and what data we can trust in smaller sets of these tracks. And the authors actually show that we might need more data than we used to think we needed to understand. Yeah, this is just really interesting. It kind of makes me think, and I don't know where I am getting this information from, but something in my brain is thinking about animals and leaving footprints and like being able to tell if an animal is injured by um, yeah. Or like if they have a limp or something. And so this is really interesting too with the footprints humans and also that they're asymmetrical, that they concluded that there was a, that the female was carrying a child, I think is, is really interesting. So it's, it's pretty fun to learn what you can, mm-hmm. um, what you can learn from some mud. <laughs> right. And that we get to, Melissa, I think like you're saying, we get a glimpse into this girl's story why was she carrying the child? We don't know, but we could tell that she was. That science can tell us one part of the story, but it's fun to use our imagination to maybe fill in the gaps a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's really cool. Bit of boom. Thanks for sharing that. So I have one myself that I heard about. I heard about a study that was published in 2019 by Jaya Balin and colleagues during the Rehabilitation Research Symposium that was a few weeks ago and hosted by the National Institute of Health. And I just found it really interesting, probably because I'm interested in how the body responds to different types of activity, especially in people with osteoarthritis. But I still think it might be interesting to other people, maybe not in that field, that specific area. (laughs) So (laughs) the aim of the study was to compare changes in the concentration of serum biomarkers in response to continuous versus interval walking exercise in participants with knee osteoarthritis. So they had people with knee osteoarthritis do continuous walking for 45 minutes and then also do interval walking. So walking for 15 minutes and then taking an hour break and then doing 15 minutes again. And they found that with continuous walking, there was an increase in a cartilage protein concentration that's associated with tissue turnover. And the state increased up to 45 minutes after the exercise. But with interval walking, the cartilage protein concentrations were back to baseline at 45 minutes. And also interesting, there was an increase in pain in the continuous walking group that wasn't there in the interval walking group. Hmm. So they concluded that incorporating rest breaks and walking regimens may be beneficial for both cartilage health and experiencing reduced pain during walking. But I think I really like this study because it compared these biomarkers to exercise And it's usually really challenging to determine the best type or dosage of exercise. A lot of studies conclude they try type of exercise, whether it's like yoga or Tai Chi or swimming, and then they're like, yes, this exercise is good. But can we really get more specific as to the right amount and the right intensity? And so maybe with methods like these, we're able to start to answer some of those questions in more of that that specific exercise domain. Well, so I love how you're always... This was a great bit of boom, and I love how you're always 
looking for ones that are actually applicable to helping people improve their quality of life in some way, especially the the population that you study. I'm just wondering for the these people, if you had one of your participants come in and you now knowing about this study, what advice would you give to your participant as far as what kind of walks they might be taking and what kind of breaks they might be taking? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think from the study, it seems like shorter bouts of walks with breaks in between are good. And I think this also goes back to some studies that are saying that what might be more important than getting a certain amount of exercise is just reducing your sedentary time, especially over long periods of time. Mm -hmm. So instead of taking an hour long walk once a day, maybe just walk for five to 10 minutes every hour, a couple of hours, and still get in that same amount, but over the whole day versus just kind of fitting it all in at one time. I love it. I feel like love we it. should all be doing that now that I think about how much I just sit at my desk. In front of my computer <laughs> all day. Yeah, good things to think about in our in our life as well, and also in trying to prevent future osteoarthritis <laughs> symptoms. <laughs> But awesome. Yeah. Thanks for your bit of boom and <laughs> learned a lot. So then we can jump into our interview with Helen. With us today is Professor Helen Bain. Helen is a lecturer, researcher, and sports scientist at the University of Pretoria in South Africa. She is a registered biokineticist, former gymnastics coach, and holds a PhD in biomechanics from the University of Western Australia. Helen has served on the board of directors of the International Society of Biomechanics and Sport and is currently the chairperson of the South African Society of Biomechanics. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Cool. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, we're super excited to hear from you, especially from that intro. It's clear you've worn and still wear lots of different hats, mm -hmm. but we're wondering, of course, about one hat in particular, your biomechanist hat. <laughs> so we want to know, when did you first know that you wanted to be a biomechanist? You know, I, I, I'm going to have to go back a few decades to get to the start of the story, actually. <laughs> I mean, I think if I say when, I was probably about 11 or 12 years old. I was a sports mad kid. I used to watch everything I could on TV and I was a gymnast myself. And I think one day there was a documentary on TV. I think it was about the Australian Institute of Sport and it featured a, a gymnast and they were doing some biomechanical analysis of, uh, of a bar routine. And from that moment on, I was like, yep, that's it. That's me. That's what I want to do. And I guess it also played into academically. I enjoyed maths and physics and so the combination of specifically the gymnastics, being interested in technical kind of sports and maths was kind of the perfect storm, I guess, to go into a career in biomechanics. So it's super lucky, you know, to be able to to do something that I've I've loved and been interested in since I was a child. And, and you know, a, a couple of years ago, I moved house and I was going through boxes. I even found an assignment or project I did in, I think, grade nine wow. on the biomechanics of gymnastics landings. We, we could no choose any way. topic we wanted. We could choose any any topic we wanted for a science class, and that's what I did. And I founded it a few years ago, which is pretty cool. Wow! <laughs> had you already heard the term biomechanics before? Or how did that? How how did you decide on that? I'm not sure. Hard to say when that exactly happened. Probably was around some of those sports science documentaries 
this is, you know, in, in the 90s. And then I guess as a coaching term as well, you know, being coached, mm-hmm. coaches were familiar with the term. So I, I probably had heard it. Yeah. And that's where it all started. That's so great. And I love that also being a former gymnast and just really appreciating movement, I think, in that way and being a coach. I don't think I was, I definitely wasn't a coach at your level. I mostly just did birthday parties, but I enjoyed that a lot because it was just little kids and you're just running around with them and getting them to just enjoy jumping around. So that's really great to hear that you're able to blend this love for movement and gymnastics with your interest in science and math so well. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think, you know, the coaching thing is so important as well. And I, I did coach for a little while. And even today, you know, that coach's eye, I think, is still so important when you are working as a biomechanist, that you don't just see movement as like numbers and graphs and, and things, that you actually look at, at the person doing the movement as well. I think that's something I try and I try and still do and try and emphasize in my students and that. Yeah, we love that. We're actually going to ask you how you think coaching has influenced some of your research. How do you think you instill that in your students or are able to maybe teach others to view movement in that way? Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not always easy because that coach's eye and that coaching kind of skill is is a specialized skill in itself. So, I mean, I just make sure that, especially at undergraduate level, that our, our course content kind of blends a bit of real world applied working with athletes and coaches as well as learning the maths and and understanding the the, the science yeah and, and then I think the coaching communication thing is so important you know if you do go on to then specialize in the biomechanics side as a biomechanist you're probably not going to be in a position to do the whole picture you know you're not going to be delivering the coaching so you've still got to be able to talk to the coaches, talk their language in order for any of your analysis or whatever to even even land and and make it into their programs and make a difference. Yeah, I think it's great that you're able to kind of come at it with all those different things and teach others. I think that's the biggest part is right being able to pass on those experiences that you've had to others. And yeah, thinking about that in the context of your current research, we're interested in what you're doing right now. So if you could just give us a brief intro to what you're currently working on that'd be really exciting because I'm sure you've got lots lots cooking <laughs> yeah I do at the moment actually I'm in, we're in quite an exciting phase our, our lab is, is really growing and we've got students on, on a bunch of different projects I guess you know my my re- personal research background was kind of focused on uh, cricket fast bowling mm. mechanics in the early days through my PhD and we looked at describing both the kinematics and also the loading at the lumbar spine in particular in relation to injury risk because there's a really high rate of lumbar stress fractures in that in that population. So we're looking at what are the technical features that might be related to increased injury risk, right? Could you just, I, think I my, did my, see that on your website with publications around fast bowling. Could you just give us like yeah. a one sentence description of what fast bowling is for I'm not sure <laughs> I know. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so so in the sport of cricket, you have a, a bowler and a batsman, kind of like in baseball where you've got a pitcher and, and, the, and the batter. But the difference is in, in cricket, you have to bowl without straightening your arm. So the bowler will, will take a run-up, like normally about 20, 25 meters long run-up, and then kind of get into this step where the arm's sort of more, more like a cartwheeling action <laughs> rather than a, a traditional throw to get this, this straight arm bowling action to still try and deliver the ball at really high speeds. And, you know, the elite guys are doing it at 140, 150 kilometers per hour, close to 100 miles per hour, 90 wow. miles per hour, I think. 
so that places because you can't use your shoulder and elbow as much as you do in the, like in a baseball pitch, the rest of the body uh, goes through these high ground reaction force impacts and, and 3D motion at the trunk. So, so the lumbar spine takes a whole bunch of the of the load, um, and that's where we get a, a lot of serious injuries that can keep guys out for like up to a year from playing competitively. So, yeah, so our research, I mean, in that then one of the things we highlighted was high amounts of lateral flexion of the trunk, so leaning away from the delivery arm when the front foot, content, front foot is on the ground. So really huge ground reaction forces, a large amount of lateral flexion of the trunk. And we think that's kind of a key component to the injury mechanism. But I guess, you know, from, from there onwards, the question is always, to me anyway, has been, you know, why are players getting into, into those positions mm-hmm. technically? Why are, they, why are they in these potentially, you know, more dangerous kinematic postures, I guess? How are they getting into those positions? Is there a physical reason for it? Is it a technical reason? And do we need to look at changing it in certain cases uh, for certain individuals? Right. If so, how do we change it? Or how do we teach kids when they're learning this, this movement to do it better? So, so a lot of my current research is focused around that kind of extension of biomechanics, looking into not just describing positions and postures that people kind of hit in a, in a movement, but the whole continuous set of movement patterns that they go through, as well as how those are coordinated. Um, so coordination and sort of continuous movement patterns. And then also linking it to strength and other physical characteristics so if somebody is stronger does it mean they're more or less likely to get into these positions anthropometry range of motion flexibility you know how do those all of those physical and technical things interact to cause people to move the way they do and then is that the way they're moving more or less likely to to lead to injury or more or less likely to lead to better performance Right. And this reminds me of something I saw in in another article where you say in order for biomechanics focused interventions to be effective, they must consider the athlete's physical capacity, coordination and skill. And so I was also curious. So you've mentioned a lot of things like strength and and with these three variables that you mentioned previously, maybe you can speak to why you feel that these are particularly important and maybe how they relate to some of the things that you've you've mentioned so far. Yeah, I guess I guess it's mainly because those are some of the modifiable levers we can we can pull to to change mm-hmm. movements and make mm-hmm. improve performance. So you know we can work on strength, we can work on range of motion, anthropometry, you know, to a lesser extent. We're talking about segment length and things like that. But you know, there's a lot of modifiable factors that we can change if we're trying to improve the way someone moves and improve their performance. So, so that's that's the one reason, and then you know on the on the coordination and, and skill side, I think that's just kind of an untapped area in our understanding of sports performance. So I think you know if we we do, we really do need to go beyond just describing positions of elite performers and 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 getting a little bit deeper into into how and why they're getting into those postures. Where do you think that comes from or what do we need to integrate more into our studies to be able to understand some of those variables? Yeah, so I mean, it's, it's, not a, it's not a simple thing to do because now you're talking about you know, multiple <laughs> variables that, that interact. So in terms of study designs and things, it's, it's very hard. You know, it's more complicated to try and, try and tease that out. And also one of the big challenges is that this is performance and movement patterns are largely individualized. There's no one size fits all that everybody must move in a certain way. And even even yeah. if you look at elite athletes in, in any sport, you know, there's a lot of variation um, on the on the in-between 
kind of pot, if I put it that way. You know, this, uh, so it's about understanding what are the key key criteria that is sort of a, a must-have for performing in a certain skill. I mean, I'll, let me give an example. So one of our projects at the moment is working is looking at this kind of concept applied in sprint acceleration performance. Hmm. So for me, you know, some of the key features that every elite athlete or anybody who wants to perform well in a sprint start is that you have to have a large amount of force applied to the ground and that orientation of that force vector, especially early on, must be you know, largely um, horizontally directed. Right. So that's kind of the, to go the forward. force application. <laughs> to go forward. You want to go forward and you want to accelerate <laughs> in the forward direction. So you need a large horizontal component of that force vector. And then, so building from that is, so what position do you need to be in at ground contact to, to do that? And it's probably things like your foot should be placed as close to directly beneath your center of mass as possible. Certainly not way out in front of you. And then, you know, how, how different athletes achieve that position might vary. We're seeing some key things like uh, the separation angle of the two thighs, so the, the kind of the knees being quite close together on contact, the thighs oh. being aligned kind of almost alongside each other, which again plugs into the foot being directly beneath your center of mass. Our question is how do we kind of quantify that to check that we're right? Because that's a lot of what the mm-hmm. our research is is testing, right? So we, we have some theories about coaching and, and how we think the movements should be performed. So part of our research is testing, is that correct? And then providing ways to measure that and, and quantify that and give feedback. It makes a lot of sense. We actually just talked to Matt Trudeau from mm. Brooks Running Company last month on the podcast, and he was talking all mm. about personalized sort of running patterns and how Brooks is trying to engineer shoes that better support people's personalized running patterns. So I think it's amazing that all this research is getting into these personalized interventions. Melissa's research is very focused on personalized mm-hmm. interventions for people with osteoarthritis. And I think the field yeah. is just moving toward better understanding each individual's variability, the population variability, and how do we cater our different studies and research and then therapies to yeah. to that. Yeah, definitely. Something that was super interesting was in one of your studies, you followed these professional rugby players over seven years and found actually that pragmatic illness prevention strategies reduced the illness incidence, sorry, of illnesses mm-hmm. by about 60% and days lost due to illness by about 40%. And so I would love if you could <laughs> explain a little bit about what pragmatic illness prevention is and just where you were coming from in designing this study. Cause I think it's something yeah. that I don't necessarily think about when we're thinking about enhancing performance or reducing injury. We don't necessarily think about, about this. So. Yeah, this is a, a you know, the, the study had been going for, for a couple of years before I got involved. You mentioned over that, that seven year period was, a, was the one that we wrote up for that paper. Wow. But yeah, the, so the idea was to firstly document the magnitude of health problems in, in professional mm-hmm. rugby players. This was, mostly in the South African players that were traveling in the, what's called the Super Rugby Tournament. So they travel between Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa for several wow. months out of the year. So, so that, that's, you know, some of the, the other part of our research group has looked at some of the travel-related yeah. questions and problems. But, um, you know, I think we, 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 we often get, especially coming from a biomechanics or sports science background we look straight into injuries which are right. you know, something we obviously want to reduce in we want to reduce those in in uh, competitive athletes but you know one of the 
I think one of the biggest predictors of performance and continued performance improvements in sport is just athletes being available to train. <laughs> right, being and, healthy. <laughs> you no, know, being healthy. So, so yes, that that um, includes injury, being injury free, but it also it also includes not being being sick. Um, and I guess in this mm. population, with the amount of travel they do, we wanted to check whether you know the illness frequencies and the illness burden was was high. And so that was sort of the monitoring phase over the first three or four years of that program. And then because, you know, there were five or six teams, now I have to remember specifically, five or six different teams, each who had their own, like, head doctor and physio that traveled with them and worked with them. And those changed, you know, from year to year in professional sport as well. So the question about, you know, how do we, if we found that there's an illness kind of problem, how do Mm -hmm. we effectively make a difference? And so this pragmatic approach, you know, it, it's really something that anybody can do with very limited resources. It doesn't take a lot of time. It, it really just takes re- mainly just some good communication and delivery from the medical team. So it was simply things like reminding and reinforcing players about hygiene, you know, washing your hands. We all, we're all pretty focused on that now. You know, so uh, good player hygiene, a couple of prophylactic treatments during, during travel times, getting good sleep. And being aware to report any symptoms as soon as they started so that it's, it's number one, they could get treatment they needed and it wouldn't spread to the rest of the squad. So, yeah, and, and you know, something as simple as that, it was clearly um, very effective and, and increased the amount of player availability for training. Right. It's so interesting. I think I've thought about in biomechanics, too, a lot of times we study these professional athletes and thinking about, OK, how can what we learn from them be implemented in more of the general population. And this question too seems super relevant for right now and kind of taking this different approach than what we typically think about. But do you think this has influenced any, I guess, applications to the general population now? Or like, what have you learned from this study that you think would be beneficial in this time where we're (laughs) also trying to avoid illness as we're traveling and and also just about in our day-to-day lives? Yeah, it's a good question because you're right. I mean, we, you know, elite athletes in particular do things to extremes. And, you know, this isn't new, you know, many Olympic training centers, there's a massive, and other national squads that I've worked with, is a massive focus on on hygiene because they know how important it is to not miss a day of training. And the same would go for, you know, injury and physical activity and make sure you stretch and make sure you eat well. And the general population maybe doesn't need to be as extremely hyper-focused on, on being perfect in all of those things, as an elite athlete might, you know, 24-7 be occupied by, by what they eat. But yeah, to a, a slightly mediated extent, you know, those, those healthy habits could definitely go a long way in the general population. <laughs> yeah, definitely. The better sleep and better eating habits can definitely mm-hmm. help you perform mentally and <laughs> Yeah, and uh, and physically, I guess too. Even if you're not performing at that high of a level, I was also curious. Like seven years is a very long time for a study, and not very common, I would say. And so I'm curious how you think this longitudinal aspect of the study was beneficial, and maybe what you learned from being part of a study that was so long. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think you know we're always limited by sample size and you know, short surveillance periods and you know, fewer participants. And so these longitudinal studies are, are vital to get that, to kind of overcome that obstacle. I think that the challenge, you know, so it's been really important descriptive data, sort of the epidemiology type of data and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the illness 
intervention was something that was was feasible to do and to test quite well in that structure. But it it is still very difficult to implement long term training intervention studies across multiple or large sample sizes over a long period of time and control all the things that we always want to try and control in research, right? So I think it's, you know, without losing the scientific rigor that we want in randomized control studies and, and things like that, we we need to you know, maybe find a find a way to be able to test these things out in a real world scenario. Mm-hmm. This is a real world, these are yeah. elite athletes who need to try these interventions. We need to test these interventions, but we can't have a, a control group and we can't control for, for everything that we would want to as scientists. Yeah, it, it's a challenge, I think, because I mean, there's several, it's, it's difficult to get those things published, right? So it's mm-hmm. an obstacle before you even start because you, you know, you kind of discourage it from doing it by the scientific process, but it's, it's, it's necessary. Mm-hmm. One thing I'm just wondering about also in the context of what Melissa talked about sort of in the general population, what we're dealing with now, was in this longitudinal study, did you get to learn about people's individual or personal variability and how much they were getting sick? I just think of, you know, our office even, there's some people that seem to always be getting sick versus some people who just no matter what's going around, they never get sick. So I'm wondering if you could learn anything about that. Yeah, that, that is definitely in the data set and the, those are the types of questions that the, the team's working on at the moment. While we couldn't really, I don't think we had daily exposure data to, to mm. you know, maybe some of the more specific things. We did document what city they were in, were they were they traveling with on an airplane, like on a daily basis throughout the season, and also baseline uh, questionnaires about, you know, past history of respiratory illness, mm. were they taking medications, all of that type of thing. So those types of individual factors will come out in some of the next analysis yeah awesome that's super exciting to just even have access to that kind of data and be able to ask those questions Mm. sort of switching gears a little bit you've mentioned in in your website and some other publications that using wearable technology to monitor athletes on the field has huge potential right to better understand and reduce injury risk as well as enhance performance so with your experience on this, can you share any potential pitfalls to avoid with working with athletes and teams? And earlier you mentioned how important it is to talk to coaches and work with them and have that perspective. But are there any other pitfalls or advice you might give? Good question. I'm, I'm glad you led with the pitfalls because I think, <laughs> you know, I think the opportunities are obvious to everybody that we have wearable sensors that are light and getting cheaper and easier to use. And we've got like software that's got a dashboard that gives you gives you the answers in real time you know right. when I want to say the answers they give you something they give you some metric or some measurement so the opportunity is is quite clear but pitfalls there's a few but you know one being that this you can be just inundated with data mm-hmm. and you can start either getting lost in it and, and not not actually using it not even knowing where to start and what you what the meaningful measurements are so I think just having a, a clear question at the start to, to mm-hmm. just help you focus on, okay, I can measure a thousand things right now. All I'm interested in is these two or three and just yeah. start there. So I think that's the main thing. And, and the other thing is, you know, a lot of the devices that are out there are kind of a black box approach sometimes. Mm-hmm. So Definitely. it's sometimes difficult to get the information about what is actually being measured at the kind of the raw measurement level. And then how is that being transformed into the data you're seeing 
what are the definitions of some of the metrics that are that are being put out there, how they're calculated. So that's those are probably the two big things for me that you want to be clear on before you start any of that. That's great. So having a clear question at the start and then understanding the metrics that you're actually getting from the devices and how they're calculating those. Yeah, I think those are two really great points to consider when you're using wearable technology. And helps manage um, expectations of both the athletes and teams, right? If you know exactly what you can and can't do. Yeah, definitely. That's a good point as well. I'd add that in there. And I think having a clear question too is such a good insight. I think sometimes it's hard because you have all of these questions. And then I think a lot of times at the end of an experiment, you're like, oh, if only I had collected that extra bit of information, then I could also answer this question. And so it's hard sometimes to balance wanting to have the chance to answer other questions and being specific enough to know what you're going to do with the data when you get it. And I think that's where, you, you know, you uh, value in working in, in teams of people, especially from a research point of view. So in an applied setting, yeah, I mean, you just want to be really clear, simple, manage expectations, like you said, and, and, and give them something they can use. But, you know, the research can go on in the background. So the, the two measurements you give to the coach or the trainer, you might look at 25. And then, you know, there's still maybe another 25 that a, a colleague or a you know, fellow student could be looking at a different a different question from the same data set. So that's also, I think, you know, a big opportunity with the state of technology and things that we and, and we need to use this data. I think, I mean, recently just working with the group student groups at the moment, you know, we we're constantly like redesigning, setting up a new proposal and a new data collection period is, is, is kind of planned. We've actually got so much data already. And if we're consistent about how we collect that from the start, you know, that you can trust the, the measurements and that documented how it was done, you know, we, we should we should make the most of what we've already got. Yeah, that's a great point. Do you have any tips for how to stay consistent when you're collecting the data, when you have all of this data? Is it a lot of self-report? Are you teaching coaches or teaching the athletes how to put on an IMU? Are you on the field collecting those measurements? Or what does that look like for you? Yeah, I think um, it definitely if you're talking about IMUs, then the fixation is a key thing. If you want to look at some of the accelerometer, gyroscope type of measures. So definitely being well-trained in the fixation of the device. And then I think documenting this the circumstances, the environment, what was actually done in the session, that that would go a long way to be able to interpret that later on. Yeah, that's really helpful. I'm curious about your, it seems like some of this work, I'm not sure, might overlap with your position as a consultant and consulting for different sports organizations like the Athletic South Africa, International Cricket Council, and Cricket South Africa. And so you take on this role as a consultant in addition to many other roles, including a professor. And so I was wondering if you could tell us how you got started with this. And I'm assuming it must be have its challenges with trying to balance different roles. And so it must be something that you really enjoy to put kind of have a foot in both academia and in this consulting role. So I was wondering what you most enjoy about it that makes you want to to do that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think you, you said uh, just then you're not sure if it overlaps, uh, you know, the things, the research and the, the consulting stuff. It absolutely does. For me, it, it has to. It's, it's really important. Otherwise, I don't think it would be really manageable. 
And, you know, how do I, how did I get there? I think I finished my PhD in Australia and then moved back home to South Africa. And my, my first role here was actually in a, primarily an applied full science biomechanics role with, you know, a bit of research and teaching because it was at a university or science center, but I wasn't academic staff at the time. And over time, I guess that sort of flipped around and I'm now full-time academic staff and I've <laughs> continued doing some of the applied work for those kind of key sports that I was working with, like cricket and sprinting. And I, it's kind of by design that I've ended up here. You know, I think early on when I was, when I was studying probably in my, like my undergrad or fourth year days, it was clear to me that the people that were teaching me that I thought had it, like they were, they were really excellent teachers. They were really excellent practitioners and good scientists. They were the people that I felt like I was getting so much out of in terms of learning. And they were passionate about what they did. And I, so from, from that, I took away that, you know, being able to be involved in research, teaching, and applied practice simultaneously, to some extent, at all times, was always going to be kind of something I wanted to try and do. And it's, you're right, it's not easy. It definitely has its, its challenges getting, you know, pulled to different bosses and different expectations. But the, the benefits outweigh those challenges, I think. I think being connected one foot in the, in the field makes you, kind of stay grounded as a scientist, if I put it that way, you know, to make sure that the, yeah. the research you're doing is actually relevant to, to someone in the field. As a practitioner, keeping the science side of it in mind also keeps you honest and, and make sure you, your methods and your approaches are, are really robust and from that point of view. And then I think the teaching from a from from my point of view, teaching also keeps me on my toes that I need to be able to <laughs> explain and communicate and, and educate the students. And, and I think the end user, whether it's the students or the athletes or your, I guess, the readers of your work probably also get a bit of that benefit of having the combination of all three things go hand in hand. I love that trifecta. It's sort of, I think you put it much more eloquently. It's sort of something I feel like I'm always trying to balance as well in, in, in graduate school and trying to figure out how much time do I spend on this? How much time do mm -hmm. I spend on this? And I think what you've highlighted is so important that each one sort of feeds each other and keeping that balance is really important. And it's okay to, sometimes you have to put more energy into one than another, but yeah. keeping that in mind really helps round out every single one of them. Yeah, I mean, balance is definitely difficult, but I, so I think you can't expect to be like equally balanced across all three at all times. You know, there'll always be one mm -hmm. that, that dominates more than others. And that could be for years, you know, years at a time, you might be 90% teaching and a little bit of research or whatever. But I think it's, it's also about having the other two in mind when you're doing the one mm -hmm. you're focused on. When you're doing research, think about, you know, how, how will this help with teaching or, and how will it help with the, applied work and, and vice versa not not just for yourself but like I said for the the consumers of whatever it is you're doing I think we're gonna switch gears a little bit and talk about another thing that you've recently done which is form the African biomechanics interest group uh, or sorry that you've co-founded it and so we're really excited about it and we just would like to hear more what are some of the main goals of this group and how did it start yeah, so when I moved back to South Africa from Australia after my PhD, I was a bit concerned that I was going to be, you know, losing what was a really strong academic professional network in Australia and, you know, the connections that I'd made around the world from attending conferences and things. And you know, I knew that wasn't going to be here in South Africa when I got back. So 
I mean, I tried to try to connect with people that were working in biomechanics and found a few like-minded souls along the way. And um, in particular, so um, John John Crowcroft at Stellenbosch University, him and I initially founded a very unofficial type of thing, this biomechanics interest group. And we just started trying to create a network around the country for people working in biomechanics to meet and, and share their work and, and things like that. And, you know, over time, that's, that's only about two years or so ago, two, two and a half years that we had kind of had our first oh, wow. meeting of that interest group. We just kind of got the sense late last year that we were kind of ready to take the next step and we've now officially formed an association called the South African Society of Biomechanics. And yeah, it's been, it's been really, the response has been excellent. So, you know, people, people are really looking forward to engaging with us locally and internationally. The idea is to, yeah, is, is to reduce that kind of isolation that we can sometimes suffer from working down here. Southern tip of Africa. You know, it's, it is it is difficult to connect with international colleagues. It's difficult to, to travel internationally. So we wanted to, we, the aim is to support the growth of the field by connecting people so that we can learn from each other. So that's, that's, yeah. that's where we're at at the moment. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. And I really like hearing about that too. I've, I did some research at the University of Cape Town for about six months before grad school. And that was just such an eye-opening experience, just kind of learning what other labs are like internationally. And I think one thing that also struck me is that the labs in different places around the world are also asking questions that are more relevant to those places Mm -hmm. in the world. And so I think that's also something great that could come out of this is not just connecting with each other, but then sharing with others, not in South Africa, what some of the important questions are that you have, and that might resonate with somebody else who's really interested in that. So I really um, am excited to see where this society goes and some of the learnings we can yeah. get from it. Yeah, Jen, and is it I open mean, I, to? I, oh, go ahead. I think you know we've already seen an example of that we on Twitter. I connect had a started having a conversation with, with Philippe Carpez from Brazil, um, oh, and we yeah, were both okay. facing challenges of trying to teach in you know in lockdown online online remote teaching especially in in these economically developing countries where access is so right. is so poor so so that's an example Melissa of what you were saying you know that we, we've got slightly different different problems or different situations around the challenges we're facing yeah so yeah it's, it's going to be a good platform for connecting from that point of view as well that's great and is it open to anyone who's interested in the society or is it mostly for people from South Africa who who would you say that yeah who can get involved it's definitely open to to everybody you know a lot of our some of our events and goings on will be online and those will be open to anybody obviously we'll have some real-time or in-person conferences and meetings in future and yeah we'd love as many international people to come out for those as possible yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, so at the moment, we, like I said, we've, we've just officially launched. So we're doing a, a few online events over the next couple of months. And then from next year, it'll become a little bit more official where you could you know, sign up as a member and then get, get access to the recordings of, of meetings and things like that. Wow, that'd be great. We would love to be able to come <laughs> and travel and, and learn. I think that would just be, and Melissa could go back and return to where she's, she's been and visit. <laughs> she knows. Sounds good. <laughs> but we'll look forward to that <laughs> super excited yeah. about it cool 
So we'll, we'll just finish up about with our last two questions here, two that are our favorites to end on. The first is, can you tell us about a time when you felt like you failed? It can be in research or just somewhere along your journey and what you learned from it. <laughs> oh man, my, <laughs> my biggest failure that kind of had a massive impact on me was I failed my driver's license the first, <laughs> at my first attempt. <laughs> to be honest, I don't know what the lesson is really. Was it a bad that. fail? <laughs> it was a bad fail. I got no. Maybe this is the I, can't, I was I was so nervous. I completely just freaked out and and messed up and failed kind of without getting out of it. I can't believe I'm telling you. <laughs> um, but to me, that was and mate. Yeah, um, this is nice off the top of my head. You know, at the time, I think it was such a big thing for me because I was you know I was a straight A student and had never never really failed a test you know so to to fail my driver's test was a big thing and I was devastated but you know if you think about research failures I don't think about any mistakes or setbacks in research as as failures because I think failure is something now you know benefit of hindsight failure is something that's really final and mm. so if if you've made a mistake you or you don't know something or you did something wrong you haven't really failed if if you keep going, you know, and, and that's what research and, and science is about getting things wrong and, and <laughs> trying a different approach and, and trying again. So, you know, that, that resilience is, is needed. You need a thick skin. You will get rejections. You will, you know, your grants, grant applications won't be successful. Journals will reject your paper. You will make a mess every now and then in a, when you collect some data. And you, you just got to keep going. So maybe my maybe my driver's license. I got it. I got it. The second prepared time, you so. for that. Yeah. <laughs> so you got it eventually. Exactly. That's an That's important great. lesson I, to learn. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like yeah. Just sum it up. You're just like you will fail. So you know the best thing you can do is just keep going. So I really appreciate yeah. that. The same thing for success, right? So failure is final but success is also you never really complete your mm. success I don't think so celebrate the small wins when you do get that grant you know is successful and then you've helped you cope with the setbacks a little bit and keep going <laughs> that's such a good point I think that's something we haven't really talked about but I was just listening mm -hmm. to a podcast yesterday that said something similar it was with Matthew McConaughey and he was like, you know, my, all I want to do is achieve and perfect and I'm never going to get there. So I'm just never going to be like fulfilled in that way in life, but I'm just going to enjoy the journey along the way. And yeah, just kind of these successes happen, but yeah, you can never really achieve like the ultimate perfection or success. So it's more just about yeah. kind of going with and just enjoying the process. Yeah. So our last question is, what are you most excited about for the future of biomechanics? Well, I mean, I think apart from some of the things we've talked about already, you know, all the sensor technology and different ways of approaching questions to get better understanding of movement skills and performance and those new methods and things that are available to us. I think that the main thing for me really is that I'm excited for biomechanics in my local scale, on my local area. You know, having the South African Society of Biomechanics now officially launched and, you know, a lot of it came from my personal experience when I wanted to study biomechanics and there were so few opportunities here at home and I, I was very fortunate mm -hmm. to go to Australia and, and I've, I just see now already that there are so many more spaces for students 
to pursue postgraduate studies in biomechanics. You know, there's some great labs around the country now and some good people doing some good work. So I'm just really excited for the opportunities for the, the next generation, the current generation, and what'll that, what that will mean for, you know, the impact on our communities, not, in, not just in sports, but in clinical biomechanics and, and all of the areas where we know how biomechanics can make such a, a contribution to different specialties in different areas. And also that that growth of South African and African biomechanics will contribute to more diverse voices in the international dialogue as well. You know, uh, we talked about it earlier about you know having slightly different problems, different constraints, uh, and different, and that having a different perspective on those challenges can probably drive some innovation. So that that diversity in the world scene, I think, <laughs> can be a good thing, and I'm excited to see where that goes. I love that. I love that idea of really getting to know your local community. This is something actually our professor, Scott, Scott Delp talks about a lot, like having an impact where you can in your local community and then letting that sort of elevate and, and ripple sort of into the larger community. Yep. I think that's really important. Oftentimes because kind of like with when you were talking about trying to research everything, then you get lost in having all this data. If you're just trying to impact everything, you can kind of get lost in trying to do that. Mm. But if you start where you know, start smaller with a more focused question or focused goal, like you're saying, focusing on the local community and what you know, then you can have more of an impact sort of on the larger scale as you go. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, so our Last thing we'd like to ask is just how can people follow you in your work? You've got an awesome website at helenbain.com, but are there, you mentioned Twitter, are there any other places where people can follow what you're up to? Yeah, so, uh, the website is a little, it's a pretty new project as well, a little snapshot of a <laughs> summary of, of some of the things that, that, that we've been up to. Uh, on Twitter, yeah, my handle is helenbainza, and then the South African Society of Biomechanics, we're also on Twitter, is biomech underscore sa. That's great. Thank you, Helen. This has been such an awesome conversation. I wish we could keep talking, but I think we've reached our limit. But this has been just really insightful and and really fun. I think we've learned some new perspectives that we hadn't heard of before, which is always really amazing and, and nice to hear. So thank you. That's really cool, guys. Thanks. I've enjoyed it as well. Thank you so much for the invite. Yeah, thank you. It's always a good sign when we we plan for a certain time and then we end up going a little bit over the sign of a good conversation. So thanks for being flexible about that too. No problem. So we hope that you enjoyed that interview as much as we did. And I think that we were able to gain some new insights to things that we hadn't really talked about before, which is always really exciting when we have a guest on. Now we will go into one of our favorite segments, Research Fails. So this is a research fail from a lab mate. We've been doing these really intense hackathons twice a week thinking about this inertial measurement unit study that we've been doing in the lab. And <laughs> we got to one of those points where I just think one of our lab mates was, had just been thinking too much about these, the different words we were using for all the different data and segments and 
IMUs and sensors and everything else. And he mistakenly said shy and thank instead of thigh and shank. And he said that wasn't the first time he had done that that day. So it was really great. Yeah. It's kind of amazing. Sometimes when you, your brain is working so hard. Yeah. And, and it's also just amazing how something so silly can just bring up so much laughter and just kind of refresh everyone too. So I feel like when those things happen, it's always <laughs> just like a nice break with of some giggles and, and just like not taking things so seriously. <laughs> exactly. Releases all the tension. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. So I have a fail that I wanted to share. I don't think I've talked about this before, but because the episode when Helen talks about failing her driving test, it made me think of some of my driving fails. And whilst I think there are too many to talk about, which is not a good thing, there's one in particular that really stands out to me because I did an internship or co-op at Toyota Technical Center in Ann Arbor in my undergrad. And on my very first day of work, there was, it was a week where we had this so much snow. It was like negative 30 degrees Fahrenheit. And they were calling it a polar vortex. I don't know if you remember this, Hannah, but it was super intense and my car wouldn't even start. So I, I remember that. The polar vortex. <laughs> yeah. So it was so cold. My car wouldn't start. So I jump started it went to work and, and it was just so icy. The parking lot was just totally like a sheet of ice and there was just huge snow piles everywhere. And so the first day went well, I, you know, I enjoyed it. I, <laughs> I did my <laughs> orientation and then it was time to leave. And I was leaving the parking lot and there's this one area in the parking lot where there's a four-way stop, but the stop sign is in the middle of the four-way stop instead of off to the side. And I could not see this stop sign. It was like in this blind spot between my white windows, windshield and my window. And so I went to go turn left and I just feel my car just hit something. And I, I couldn't stop because of the ice. So I just like kind of continued to like roll over whatever I was hitting. And I lit- I like got oh out of my, my car gosh. and I was like, I don't even know what I could have hit right now. And I got out and I saw the stop sign was just flattened. And it was so cold that the bumper to my car just shattered basically because it was like frozen. And it was just really kind of mortifying to have to go back in to the office and be like, hey, I just, I just totally wrecked a stop sign in the parking lot on my first day. But so I did that. And then I had to fill out a lot of paperwork for that, including they do this five whys where you ask, well, why did, why did that happen? Well, why did that happen? Which is actually kind of a useful tool that I've sometimes frame problems in still, but then you have to propose, you have to propose countermeasures and So my countermeasure was like, well, why we could put in a roundabout or we could move the stop sign to the side of the road. And then like whoever I sent it to replied back and she was like, or we could have driving lessons uh, for people in the winter 
on how to like drive in the snow or something. (laughs) And I was like, ouch. (laughs) But my coworkers were just super cool about it. They just, but it just also gave them something to make fun of me for, for the rest of my internship and beyond, which in some ways, you know, ends up being a fun thing to be able to laugh about with them. But after I stopped crying, I guess, but anyways, it was just pretty, pretty embarrassing. I thought I would share my driving fail. (laughs) (laughs) on your first day that's a lot to handle but I do think similar to Helen's driving fail you have something it sounds like the five whys that you're able to take with you moving forward so I think even though it was a rough first day (laughs) it really taught you something yeah yeah it did and it also taught me to just be more aware of uh what's around me when I'm driving so that's always good too (laughs) you never hit anything when I've been driving with you so (laughs) yeah that is one record that I hope to keep clean (laughs) but yeah this is a really great time today we're recording this episode and so we just also wanted to thank you the listeners for listening to this episode and hope that you enjoyed it so we'd also like to thank our sponsors the international society of biomechanics for all of their support and enthusiasm in boom and if you would like to submit a research fail suggest a person person for us to interview get involved in the podcast we would love to also have somebody help us with some of our social media you can email us at biomechanicsonourminds at gmail.com or you can follow us on twitter at biomechanics oom all right i'm melissa <laughs> and i'm hannah biomechanics biomechanics off our minds, off our minds. <laughs>